Jesus, you have done everything for us. Help us to return to you everything we've got. We pray that you would open up your word and help us know who you really are and what you came to do and how we can make you our only way in life. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In my former church on Mother's Day, we used to give a, a rose to, in, each new, in each service to the newest mom in that service. And it got kind of competitive after a while. One, one woman wanted that rose so badly that she went to her doctor the day before Mother's Day to get induced so she could have the baby and get the rose, which she did. Don't ask me why. So the next year on Mother's Day, the senior pastor was kind of explaining all this, and he said, you know, this rose thing has gotten kind of competitive. He said, you know, some women are even going to their doctors to get seduced so they can have a baby. <laughs> there was a moment of shock, and then a lot of laughter in the congregation. Shock and laughter is the response I often get whenever I tell someone that I believe that Jesus, and only Jesus can reconcile us to God and give us eternal life. We're doing a sermon series on questions that you all have asked, and this one is the one that I got more than any other question. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? What about people of different religions, or people who haven't heard about Jesus, or people who are good people, they just didn't believe in Jesus, are they going to heaven or not? This is the 21st century question. I got it more than any other when I was on the Stanford campus. Because we live in a multicultural society, lots of different religions, lots of different worldviews, and everything in us wants to say, well, they're all basically the same, right? Problem is, they can't be the same, because they claim radically different things. Some believe there's one God, others believe there's a lot of gods. Some believe there's life after death, others no life after death. To say that all religions are the same is like saying that all books are the same because they're printed on paper. Yeah, there's some similarities, but there are even more differences. And, to say, and also, I think to say that all religions are the same kind of insults all of them. I mean, I don't think Muslims appreciate it when people say, well, you're just the same as Christians. And it's in this context that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Wow. Way to be politically incorrect, Jesus. Right? Like, didn't you mean to say you're one of many ways? No. The book of Acts says, there is no other name by which people can be saved but by Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that other religions don't have things of value. They do, and we should respect other religions. But what the Bible claims and what I, a former atheist, came to believe is that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only one to connect us to the Father and give us eternal life. And I want to share with you some reasons that I came to believe that. And this sermon, at points, will get a little bit philosophical. So if you could just every once in a while nod to let me know you're awake... That would really help me, especially on the time change Sunday, okay? So just let's practice. Nod. There you go. Okay, the Presbyterian amen. It's awesome. <laughs> the first reason I came to believe that Jesus is the only way is that he's the only one who conquers our worst enemy, which is death. And in the past, I've given you a lot of historical reasons why I believe Jesus really was raised from the dead. And I can't go into them now, but if you want to know them, send me an email. I'd be happy to send them to you or read one of the books in the bulletin. Because if it's true that Jesus really was raised from the dead, you got to say this much, that's unique. And we probably should pay attention to that. 
Second reason that I believe that Jesus is the only way is because in Jesus, God comes to us. We don't go to him. Jesus is God in the flesh, showing us who God is really like, what he's about. And again, this is unique. Every other religion is about us trying to get to God, do more good deeds, have a pilgrimage, right? Get, get enlightened. But in Jesus, God comes to us, which just makes sense. Because if we're really going to know Jesus, then he's going to, or God, he's going to have to come to us, not the other way around, because he's just so much more complex. It would be as if goldfish tried to understand us. Right? The only way that could happen is if we would become a goldfish and try to explain ourselves. And even then, we might be incomprehensible. When my kids were toddlers, they would sometimes walk up to me and put their arms up, asking to be picked up. Now, there is no way that my kids could ever get into my arms on their own when they were toddlers, no matter how hard they stretched or reached. So I would bend down to pick them up. And that is the difference between Jesus and every other religion. Every other religion is us reaching up to God, trying to get to him on our own. But in Jesus, God bends down to pick us up. A third reason that I came to believe that Jesus is the only way to God is because he's the only one who gives us what we really need, which is a savior. You've maybe heard me say this before, but the religion you choose will be based on the problem you think you have. And if you think that your problem is that you don't know enough, you're going to pick a religion of enlightenment. If you think that your problem is that you're not good enough, you're going to pick a religion that emphasizes good deeds. And I suppose if you don't think you have a problem, you'll be an atheist. But if you think that your problem is that you're not good enough and you don't know enough and there's nothing that you on your own, a fallible human being, ever could do to be good enough or to know enough to relate to an infinite, all-holy God, you have only one option, and that's Jesus. Because what you're saying is you need a Savior. You're saying, I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. Gandhi, who was not a Christian but was a very wise man, said this, It is an unbroken torture to me that I am still so far from him who governs every breath of my life. And I know that it is the evil passions within that keep me so far from him, and yet I cannot get away from them. That's Gandhi. And I don't think he's saying he needs enlightenment. I don't think he's saying he needs good deeds. He's saying there's a brokenness inside of me, and it creates a gulf between me and God. The Bible calls that brokenness sin. And try as I might, I can't fix it on my own. Now here would be the problem. Because we don't like to admit that we've got a sin issue in our culture. We don't, we, we're just, in our culture, we are just terrible at fessing up. We just do it very poorly. I came across a list of insincere apologies from the last couple of years. One, they're fascinating. One was from a newspaper in the South. And it said, it has come to the editor's attention of the Herald-Ledger that we neglected to cover the civil rights movement. We regret the omission. 40-year <laughs> omission, right? <laughs> There was another one from a lawyer who referred to potential jurors from the eastern Kentucky mountains as, quote, illiterate cave dwellers. This is how he apologized. He said, the comment was not meant to be a regional slur. To the extent that it was misinterpreted to be one, I apologize. <laughs> we cannot admit that we've got a sin issue. But as G.K. Chesterton said, sin is the only theological concept that can be 100% empirically proven. Just look around. Right? And if you, if you still don't think you have uh, sin, have kids. Right? They're perfect mirrors. Right? Where did they learn to do that? Must be their mother. <laughs> we sin. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> the bases were... <wrong. laughs> 
We sin and our sin hurts other people. Let me take just one example. I've used this before. A common, everyday, ordinary sin. We all do it. It's not that gossip. And we think, well, you know, it's not that bad. Gossip, we all do it. Why can't God just overlook that? Well, have you ever been gossiped about? I have. It hurts. It's no fun. It's miserable. I used to work in an office where whenever someone would leave the room, Everyone in the office would then start gossiping about that person who left the room until he came back. I never wanted to leave that room, right? Because it hurts. It's painful. Gossip, it, it, it causes people to judge the person gossiped about. It creates animosity between people. It destroys reputations that took a lifetime to build. It is almost always not true. It hurts. Do you really want God to simply overlook that because it's a kind of common, ordinary, doesn't seem so bad, at least it's not Hitler kind of a sin? You see, a God who does not deal with sin is a God who is not loving because he allows bad things to happen to people and sin is never dealt with. Perfect love demands perfect justice. So at the cross, God deals with it. The cross is God's ultimate act of self-revelation. The cross is God's ultimate way of saying, this is my character. This is what I'm really like. And at the cross, what he is saying is, I am perfectly loving, which means I must also be perfectly just because sin cannot go unchecked. The cross shows us how seriously God takes our sin. Deadly serious because it hurts people. But it shows us how much he loves us. So sin is punished, but in Jesus God says, I'll take the punishment myself so you don't have to. I have a friend who worked at Microsoft, and one day he was trying to explain all of this to his coworker, and he came up with the most original analogy I've ever heard in my life, and I've heard them all. He said, let's say I gave you a peanut butter sandwich, but I told you it had just a little bit of manure in it. Would you eat it? I told you it was original. <laughs> and she said, no. And he said, well, what if it was just a little bit of manure mixed in with a whole lot of peanut butter? I mean, way more peanut butter than manure. She said, no. And he said, well, what if I used seven grain, $10 a loaf bread that I got at Whole Foods? How about then? No. And he said, that's what sin is like. We try to dilute it with all of our good deeds, cover it over with all of our fancy achievements, but sin wrecks everything, even just a little bit, will wreck your life and other people's, no matter how small it seems. And she said, well, then what does Jesus do about that? And he said, he gives you a new sandwich. He gives you a new sandwich. And he takes yours and deals with it himself. And if you accept his Holy Spirit, him, then his Holy Spirit lives inside of you and will make you more like him starting in this life and finishing the job after you die. And all we have to do is accept it. But there again is that problem. Because in our culture, we just don't like to think that we have sin, so we don't think that we need a Savior. But you know what? That dog won't hunt. That dog won't hunt if you just look deep inside yourself, look at the relationships you've damaged, I've damaged, we've got sin, it hurts. And if you have a hard time connecting with this and you don't see your need for Jesus to forgive you, try this. Pray every day between now and Easter, Jesus, show me my sin. Talk about a dangerous prayer. I have a friend who was a successful businessman, and he kind of thought of himself as a good person. But you know what? Along the way, he'd hurt his wife a lot because he treated her more like a nanny and a maid than a wife. His kids were wounded by him because he'd lashed out in anger just one too many times. His employees were stressed out because he was such a perfectionist. And there were folks who he was estranged from, used to be his friends, but he just couldn't get over that one incident, incident just couldn't forgive him. But in many ways, a good man. You know, jovial, outgoing, loved his wife and kids. But deep down, deep down, he knew he was hurting people. And it started to make him miserable. 
Well, one day he was sitting in the stadium watching a football game, and he felt someone hug him, and he looked around, and there was no one there. And he figured that it was God, and he felt God's love kind of in his heart. That started him going to church. And as God's love became more real to him, as he heard more about it, he was able to own up to some of his flaws because he knew that if he owned up, God wasn't going to reject him. God loved him, so he felt safe doing that. And he began to see the ways that he'd hurt people through his ordinary, daily, not-that-bad sins. So he asked Jesus to forgive him and take charge of his life, and gradually, through the Holy Spirit, he began to change. He started to show more affection to his wife and his kids. He started seeing his business not as a way just to make money, but as a way to make people's lives better, including his employees, by not stressing them out and by stewarding their gifts and helping them grow. And now he's way happier, way better relationships. He's not as stressed out. Jesus exchanged his rotten peanut butter sandwich for a good one. Jesus took what he'd broken and he made it whole, took what was wounded and made it well, because he makes everything glorious. He makes everything glorious, and if you are his, that means he makes you glorious too. This man did not see his sin, but still deep inside he knew he had it and he was hurting others. But now he knows that he knows that he knows that he's forgiven because of Jesus. You see, and that's another reason we need Jesus. Because if God were just to say at our sin, oh, that's okay, never mind, you know, I I forgive you, it wouldn't seem very real, right? I mean, psychologically, it wouldn't seem like nothing had really happened to forgive us. What about all the ways we've hurt people? Doesn't something need to be done about that? But Jesus, Jesus' death backs up God's forgiveness. We can look at his death on the cross and know that we are free, forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean. Our sins have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. And that means we can stop trying to earn our own salvation, try to paper over our sin with all of our achievements, hoping it's enough peanut butter to cover over our stuff. But in Jesus, whenever we need to have proof that we are loved, the nails in his hands and the wounds in his feet are proof positive that we're loved, forgiven, accepted. Only Jesus conquers death. In Jesus, God comes to us. Only Jesus gives us what we really need, and that's a Savior. Now, that raises a big question, and here's the one a lot of you asked. Well, if that's true, what about the person in Africa who never heard about Jesus? Or what about my Aunt Midge? My Aunt Midge was a really good person. She just didn't believe in Jesus. Are they going to hell because they weren't Christians? Well, I affirm what I know, and I don't affirm what I don't know. Here's what I know from Scripture. God is loving. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. Somehow, Jesus is the only way, and somehow those three things go together. So we know, for instance, that some people in the Old Testament were saved. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus, and the Bible says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And what did Abraham believe about God? Just that there was some God out there, generic God? No, no, no. It was actually pretty specific. When it comes to getting right with God, Abraham at one point says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. In other words, Abraham has this dim understanding that he cannot save himself, but that God is going to have to do it for him, which God does 2,000 years later in Jesus. Hear me on this. Abraham believes in the function of Jesus and his need for Jesus, even though he's never heard his name. Abraham believes in the function of Jesus and his need for Jesus, even though he's never heard the name. So presumably when Abraham gets to heaven and sees Jesus, he's going to say, you're the one I was looking for my whole life, I just didn't know your name. Just as some people may look at Jesus and say, you're the one I was running away from because I don't want to admit I messed up. You see, how much of Jesus do you need to know to be saved? 
The thief on the cross knows almost nothing about Jesus. No fully formed theology of the atonement or predestination or all the things. Nothing. Right? He just knows he needs a savior. And wherever people respond to that truth, they're saved whether they know Jesus' name or not. In the shack, there's a nice, in the book The Shack, there's a nice line where someone asks Jesus, do all roads lead to you? And he says, no, but I come down all roads. But be clear on this. If folks go to heaven, it's not their Buddhism or their Islam or, for that matter, Christianity that gets them there. Christianity saves no one. Only Jesus saves and his death on the cross, whether you know his name or not. If you get in, it's based on Jesus and what he did on the cross. And it's certainly not our good deeds. Sometimes you'll hear people say, well, as long as you live a good life, well, then, then you'll go to heaven. That is not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible says. It's the opposite. People who go to heaven are the ones who can admit that they're bad and that they need a Savior. If on Judgment Day Jesus asked me, why should I let you in, Dudley? And I said, because I'm a good person. I was the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Bellevue. How much gooder can you get than that, right? <laughs> first Presbyterian Church, Jesus, not the second, the first. <laughs> Jesus would say, you so don't get it. <laughs> You're, nobody's a good person. That's not what I'm going to say. I'm going to say because I am a miserable sinner and I need a Savior and that's you. And Jesus is going to say, come on in. Come on in. What saves us is Jesus. And one thing I know for sure, I mean this much I know for sure, on Judgment Day, you know, however God works it out, on Judgment Day, God is not going to look over at me and say, hey, Dudley, what do you think about this person, in or out? Right? Not going to happen. Hey, Leatherberry, should I let him in, Dudley? You know, it's not going to happen. No, I mean... Sorry, Rich. <laughs> oh, man, and that was caught for the podcast and everything. <laughs> Two services are going to hear that. All right, here's my point. <laughs> Christianity saves nobody, only Jesus does. And it's not particular, Christianity is not particular about who gets saved, just who does the saving, only Jesus and people who know they need him. And that's why Jesus being the only way to God is not narrow. It is not narrow. It is actually the most inclusive way there is because you don't have to be born in the right caste. You don't have to perform a lot of rituals or pil pilgrimages. You don't even have to be good. All you need is, to know, need is to need to know your need for Jesus. And anyone can do that. But there's one more reason well, I believe Jesus is the only way, and this is the most important one. So if I've lost you up to this point, your minds are wandering, bring the ponies back into the corral, because I want you to hear this one. This is the most important reason. The biggest reason I believe Jesus is the only way to God is because he is the only one that offers us a relationship with God, which is what we need. Jesus is the Father in human form showing us his heart, saying, this is what I'm like. I love you. I am passionate about you. You are safe with me. You can stop running away. Other religious figures said, I have the truth, I know the truth. Only Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus offers us relationship, not religion. A friend of mine grew up with a father who loved her but was very emotionally distant, and so he didn't show much of his love, and her mom was mentally ill. And she'd wake up at night to the sounds of slamming doors, angry words, car wheels, screeching. Her parents eventually separated. In her late teens, she had to go live with her mother. She was struggling in school, no friends, crying every day. Last straw was when her mom, without her knowing about it, gave away her dog, which was her only source of comfort. 
And she said, I am not going to make it. I got nothing left. And to her, God was nothing but a stern figure who kept his distance and would ignore her as long as she didn't rock the boat, sort of like her parents did. Well, one day she came home from school and she heard a man singing Amazing Grace on the radio and heard a preacher tell the story about Jesus, God himself coming in human form to find us when we'd run away from him. And her whole idea of God shifted. This is how she describes the experience now that she's an adult. She said, I was aware that I was known intimately and affectionately by a God who I had not known. I had no idea the immensity of his love for me until that moment. His love, which clearly came from outside of myself, filled the emptiness inside of me. It made me feel alive and known, and I was suddenly happy for no external reason at all. I stayed up the whole night reading scripture. It suddenly all came alive just enjoying God's presence, and I kept saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I kept hearing God say, no, no, I love you, back. God Almighty came to me intimately through Jesus, who showed me what the Father was really like. I'm not making this up. The good news is actually real. It is the most real thing we've got. Whatever you're going through, whatever you have to deal with, the Father's amazing love is available for you in Jesus. She didn't need philosophical truths or good deeds. She needed a life-altering relationship with her heavenly father. And no one offers that except Jesus. And that's why he's the only way. But you know what? None of that matters unless he is your only way. So if you don't know Jesus, I would encourage you to get to know him. Start talking to him in prayer. Ask, some, ask a pastor, some Christian friends, so you can learn more about him. And if you do know Jesus... Is he your only way? Or are you also relying on your goodness or your money or your achievements to get through life? If you are, will you pray, Jesus, help me to rely on you only and not those other things? And then will you let him take what is broken and messed up in your life and exchange it for something that's brand new? You see, in Jesus, the Father has done everything, including suffering on a cross to show us just how much he loves us. In Jesus, the Father is making his appeal to us. He's saying, my son, my daughter, don't you see how much I love you? Don't you see how far I'll go? Don't you see that I would rather die than lose you? Don't you see how deeply, passionately I love you? Won't you come home? And Jesus is the only religious figure who doesn't ask us a moral question or a theological question or a philosophical question. Jesus is the only re religious figure who offers us, asks us a relational question. Will you let me love you? Will you let me be your leader and forgiver? And you can say no, because he gives you that freedom. Or you can say, I need more time, and he'll keep working with you. But the answer he's longing to hear is yes. So will you let him in? Because who else offers us a relationship where we can stop performing to cover over our flaws and earn acceptance? Jesus already paid the price for our sin. We are fully accepted by the Father. Who else offers us intimacy with the living God? Not Buddha, not Muhammad, only Jesus does. Where else can we get power in this life and the promise of eternal life with God where we will never know death, suffering, or pain again? Only Jesus. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. No other fount I know to make me white as snow. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm not talking about Buddha. I'm not talking about Muhammad, Confucius, Oprah. They may have done some great things. But only Jesus takes what we've broken and makes it whole. 
Only Jesus exchanges our death for his life that never dies. Our sin for his forgiveness that can't be tarnished. Our sorrow for his joy that won't be diminished. Our fear for his hope that never disappoints. Our shame for his glory that doesn't fade. Our poverty for his resources that never end. And our weakness for his power that cannot be stopped. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in you and me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever take you from his hand till he returns or calls you home. Here in the power of Christ we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Will you let him in? And if you know him, will you let him be your only way? If you do, he'll change your life forever. So Jesus, thank you for this amazing gift that you have given us. Thank you that you sacrificed the comforts of heaven to show us the face of the Father to show us the Father's heart of love, to show us how much you believe in us. So Jesus, help us, those of us who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would continue to call us to yourself. And for those of us who do know you, help us to make, us, make you our only way and lean on nothing else but your everlasting arms. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.